Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. The role of technology in financial services is perpetually in flux. The pandemic finally forced the laggards to get on board with digital transformation. The recent rise of generative AI raises the question, where does the human fit? In the first half, Brendan Andrews, Marketing Director for Dart Bank, and James White, General Manager of the Banking Segment for Total Expert, and I talk about how technology complements rather than replaces the human element. But the human also has to adapt. In the second half, Patrick Sells, CEO of True Digital, and I talk with Cyrene Wilkie, COO of Horicon Bank, about maximizing the ROI of technology investments. Spoiler alert. Compare features all you want. Success is not about picking the right partner. Relationships, relationships, relationships. It is nearly impossible to get a community bank or credit union executive alike to pipe down about the importance of their relationship with their customers. I mean, it's worse than the nine out of 10 to 10 dentists will recommend. If you ask any one of these financial service executives, they're going to go off. Their unique competitive advantage is their relationship, which always begs the question. It's not really unique if nine out of 10 of you are saying it's the same thing, except I don't think relationships really mean what they think it means. And moreover, I think the nature of relationships is really changing. And so, James, why don't we start with you? What defines a good relationship? How can that be your competitive strength? Well, I think that a lot of times uh, we as financial institutions forget, you know, that a good relationship, whether it be business, is the same as a personal relationship. You want to make sure that, you know, you're reliable and and consistent. You're relatable. You you understand uh, the person that you have a relationship with or you have a desire to understand them uh, and that you're credible, that you have trust, that that person feels like that uh, you're in it for their best interest, or at least it's uh, equal interest, that you're not just in it for yourself. And that's the same whether it be your uh, best friend that you golf with uh, or your financial institution. You know, those characteristics are really the same. Brennan, would you agree with that? Because, I mean, do many of us really come at this and say, I don't want to be relatable or I don't have your best interest in mind? It feels like that should be a commodity. Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the biggest things is what we view a relationship is how in our life, we're not looking at it from, you know, what individual customer, what group of customer, what is that relationship from their, their point of view? And I think, you know, that buzzword relationship gets thrown around, but it's from the banker's perspective. And I think that's where you can actually have an advantage is trying to kind of reverse engineer what that thought would be. Well, that is a really important point. While we continue on that thread, what do you think a good relationship means from the customer's point of view? I think it would be, you know, being there when things are not going well. Um, I often find, you know, it's super easy to meet people's needs when, you know, everything's going well in the banking environment or everything is going well in their lives. However, you know, it's when it's late at night and their debit card won't work and they're in a really hard 
you know, spot or, you know, their family just went to the hospital and they need to access their banking to do something for them. And we have examples of that, uh, you know, cultivating those relationships and really, you know, focusing on those hard times. And that's really when it matters. It's not when, you know, they're depositing a check. It's when they need that money. Yeah, I, I could not uh, agree more. And if you think about, you know, financial institutions have so much information on uh, these individuals and have really been trying to, to find ways to convert that to action since probably the mid 90s and, and been overwhelmed by that. Uh, and so uh, instead of trying to boil the ocean, just focus on being uh, relatable, you know, being the individual that's going to be there that's looking out for their best interests when times are hard. Uh, which uh, we're probably on our way uh, to have a lot of opportunity to do that with our customers. A a bank CEO once told me that tech-driven companies view data as assets to be used, while banks view it as assets that should be locked up in the vault. And James, you're hinting at something broader here, like our ability to use and unlock data to do new things is really coming of age. I don't think you can, you know, turn on the news without hearing about AI and chat GPT, which is something I think a lot of financial institutions uh, on the smaller side especially worry about. Do you have some examples about you know how can we better utilize data? It, I mean, it has to be something better than getting an email or a text message from your dentist saying happy birthday. How do we unlock the power of data? Well, and it uh, has to be qual. Uh, crawl, walk, run. You know, I can't tell you how many financial institutions I talk to and I talk about what are they looking to do and they immediately go to uh, AI and machine learning and I ask them how they leverage data today and they don't. And so you can't go from nothing to everything. And so just as an example, I mean, we're um, in a deposit era right now. Everybody wants to retain their existing depositors as well as uh, garner new ones. Uh, manage and nurture your existing CD customers uh, or members so that you uh, don't have to worry about them chasing rates, financial education. All that takes is their existing rate, their existing expiration date, and who they are. There's three super small data elements where you could be communicating to your existing CD holders six months before uh, renewal uh, and, and be very targeted. I mean, that's just something super simple. Yeah. It, it amazes me how often. I get email marketed to by my financial institution that their idea of personalization was to add my name to it. And I open it and I'm like, you really thought these personalized offers were like tailored to me? Do you even know who I am? You know, Brendan, I'm, I'm curious when, you know, Dart Bank is thinking about personalization in this, you know, walk or crawl, walk, run, you know, what were the first steps you took and where has that journey taken you? So I'll start with a crawl. I mean, it's it's little data points where, you know, we find out that we have a customer that is going to an ATM overseas. So we send them a notification that, you know, hey, is this really you? Because you, you didn't notify us, you didn't use the app to notify us of travel. Uh, and they reply, yes. Well, that note is then going to be sent to deposit operations. And they might reach out to the customer and say, hey, we see you're in Ireland. You use an ATM that's not one that could be free that's, you know, a block away. Um, these are all the ones that are free with your card. Oh, and by the way, since you're on vacation, do you need us to raise that limit for your credit? That way you don't get yourself in a bad situation. So, you know, that's not a super 
complicated process. It's using a little bit of effort and a little automation to change, you know, a future problem that they might have. Um, and then in terms of other personalization, I think it's, you know, leveraging tools, whether it's like high tech or AI to actually deliver something that matters most to them. Um, you know, it could be a, hey, I just saw you got a promotion on LinkedIn because you follow them and you shoot them a message. Um, it could be, you know, leveraging their data to know that, you know, the CD example, hey, you actually could qualify for another rate. It costs us a little bit of money to tell you that because, you know, they're going to get a better rate on their deposit, but, you know, it's going to impact their lives positively. So I think it's those little data points that make a big difference. Well, I mean, you both have hinted at something that I think historically hasn't been necessary, but it's this idea of being both predictive and proactive in the relationship when we're you know, really used to customers walking through our door, right? Whether it be a banker or a credit union telling us what they want or need. James, across all of the total expert spectrum, I'm curious, what examples do you have of you know who's doing it right when it comes to being predictive? Yeah, so it's always a balance between human and technical interaction. And it, it really is uh, different around segments. So you have to be able to, to understand the, the segments. And so I was actually just on the phone with an individual earlier today, and he was talking about uh, that balance uh, and how it's different for him, who's a Gen X, than it is his uh, kid, who's a Gen Z, uh, and how uh, his bank had actually lost his relationship with him because uh, of that he's used to to person uh, person to person interaction and had built a strong relationship over a long period of time, uh, but now his uh, kid is getting. Um, marketing content that does not relate, as you mentioned earlier, Jason, you know, things that, you know, the kid is below 18 years of age. There's only very limited things that should be communicated to, to his kid. He's like, if you're trying to, to push and sell my kid this hard, uh, you either don't have something going or you, uh, you don't have my best interest in, at, at heart. And so he was uh, recently shifted banks. And that's what we see from a technology perspective at Total Expert. It's about creating tailored plans to those individual segments and then executing uh, that balance accordingly. So normally when we think about segmentation, it is really around age and maybe gender and maybe marital status. They tend to be very vanilla things. Um, I'm curious for either one of you, where have you found the most useful way to begin thinking about segmentation, if not the generic demographic? I think it's uh, leveraging data points that don't necessarily look at that. Um, you know, you could have a you know 20-year-old that has a million dollars. You could have a 50-year-old that has $10 in their bank account. You wouldn't want to segment them, you know, necessarily the same. I think you can get really granular and build these segments kind of however you want to shape it to their benefit. But the idea is to actually benefit the consumer and actually use as many data points as possible. So, you know, I don't want to ever group a an email, for example, that's 18 to 21. You know, that age range should be similar, but it's not. Um, you know, where they come from, you know, where they've been, where they are in their lives, they could already be out, like out of college. It could be, you know, they could have already had their own business at 16. They could have done all these things. They're not the same person. I think if you look at that from a data point segment versus a, you know, age segment or where we expect, right? It's all these assumptions um, and kind of going into the AI 
space where they're having issues is the assumptions, right? Because as humans, we make those assumptions. So it's it's trying to think a little differently and uh, build it more based on the actual versus what we think the actual is. That is such an important point about being data-driven in this, that we, you know, in an old world that we feel more slowly in this human interaction you know, drove where we went. And we didn't have to look at the full complement of data because it wasn't available, frankly. Um, it was easy to make assumption and have those uh, assumptions reinforced because, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. James, I'm, I'm curious from a actually deploying this, like if we think about you know, planning campaigns, typically as we make some assumptions, but we call them hypotheses. And our approach is to, you know, digitally or maybe even sending some paper, um, deploy those, but it becomes a kind of a set it and forget it. When you think of this new era and the use of data, how do FIs need to think differently about that approach and the use of data? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question because there's really uh, two uh, ways. So first, you've got the the age-old campaigns where you know you may use a segmentation, uh, home ownership, income, presence of children, uh, those types of things where you're you're pushing an individual product. I know it's April and I'm going to uh, send out my uh, refi campaign, my auto refi campaign, uh, the age old seasonality, you know, type stuff. But the real way to, to do it, uh, those things still work to some extent, but is individual one to one marketing and leveraging you know, intelligent uh, alerts or, you know, some people. Uh, say triggers, but now triggers is really starting to get negative connotations with the CFPB and some of the things. But you know, really trying to to leverage individual data points so that you can, to Brennan's point, create these custom segmentations uh, for your individual market uh, and the demographics that are in your market. Uh, Dart banks in Michigan—that's very different banking than it is in New York City, and those demographics are very different, and those segments have to be very different. And so being able to, to leverage those t- data points, understanding, you know, how your customers are engaging with you as well, what channels should be factored into that uh, segmentation as well. Now, I'm I'm curious for both of you, the world has shifted dramatically, not just with COVID, now it's actually with rates going up. And I think that may actually be an even bigger shock to the system for banks when capturing retaining deposits are more important than ever when we haven't had to worry about that for the last 15 years. But I'm curious, within Dart Bank, how has this shifted your playbook and you know what you worry about and how you're working on doing that? Yeah, you know, it really depends. I think with rising rates, you have to be more creative. You have to uh, compete in a way that you know your rates are competitive, but also you provide something extra. Uh, we were placed really well pre-COVID because we had already implemented uh, video banking software. Um, so someone could bank with the teller that they know from their home before COVID even started. So we had already kind of gone through that training process of our customers. Uh, and then we also had uh, established interactive teller machines uh, in our drive through So they were really familiar with seeing their you know, banker on the actual screen versus going in and necessarily cultivating that relationship in branch. Um, And I think, you know, you are going to lose some deposits based on someone that does a crazy, crazy CD special. But at the end of the day, you need to do a better job of reaching out to them and saying, hey, in this, you know, kind of turbulent time, we're here for you. These are the additional things we've added in the last, you know, three months that might benefit you. I've looked individually at your account. 
And this is what I've noticed. I see you've been uh, spending this, uh, you know, at a different place. Do you have any questions for me? How can I help you? And then that's kind of how you compete. And it goes back to that relationship, but it's leveraging the technology times the relationship to meet their outcomes that they desire. Yeah. So, Brent, I couldn't uh, agree more. You've got to be able to to leverage the technology to somewhat manufacture some of that relationship that you used to build uh, at the teller line when you went to church and, and school with, you know, the branch manager and all the, those things. And so uh, you still build the relationship through uh, having those interactions, but you have to manufacture some of that through things like relationship pricing and being able to try to get as sticky as possible. Uh, also, whenever you have a new customer, making sure that you're leveraging uh, age old things like onboarding, you know, to make sure that they're getting uh, the different channels engaged. Not only do they get a login to online and mobile banking, they actually logged in, they have bill pay and they've actually set up a biller. Uh, they've uh, a debit card, uh, they've activated it, they've swiped it, they put it in their virtual wallet. You know, all those types of things are are crucial because uh, no matter what we think, our relationships are so much more fragmented now. Uh, the average consumer has five, six, ten financial relationships if you really look at, you know, some of uh, uh, the fintechs out there. And people are, are rate shopping, uh, but you can't win on rate. Your cost of funds isn't going to support uh, winning on rate long term. Uh, and so uh, it's really it's been very interesting for for me because uh, not all of us in the financial services industry are old enough to remember rate uh, increases and what it takes to have a strong deposit strategy and, and making sure that, you know, we can really manufacture those relationship components we we're just talking about. Uh, think about if you. Uh, get um, reduced closing costs if you have a direct deposit on a mortgage or if you have um, um, you get 50 basis points off your auto loan as long as you have a money market and a check-in account. Uh, you're not going to leave uh, just uh, because you don't want to have to deal with the increased rates or, or increased fees for all these other products. It, it's it's going to be crucial that not only banks and credit unions start to look at this, but that the core systems support it uh, in the background as well for them to get creative around these relationship products. Well, in, we so often take as the presumption that we are the, the most important financial relationship that our customers have and don't look at those data around where else are they you know, using and how do I actually begin to integrate Instead of this assumption, the one that you know leaps to mind, the number of banks within the Alloy Labs consortium said, "Oh, our customers don't use Venmo because you know they don't need that. You know, we've got Pop Money or Zelle, right?" Yeah. And then they looked at the the data and they were stunned that we don't often see you know banks using the asset they have right back to putting it in the vault. And when they do look at it, that tends to become a, well, what's the next best product? And James, I know you have a strong point of view about this, that it isn't about marketing to your customers and you know, misusing that relationship. So if it isn't about customers wanting to be marketed to, how do we think about expanding the relationship? Yeah, well, uh, what's old is new again, uh, is what immediately comes to mind as you you say that uh, question. It's It's really getting back to that relationship uh, and, and focusing on the relationship uh, and building that relationship, which uh, has a lot of things like uh, offering uh, products and services that may benefit the, the consumer more than you. We've, you know, it's a big buzzword, financial health and financial wellness. Well, uh, 
most banks and credit unions do that, you know, to some extent, they may have a blog, you know, on their website, but that's very different than leveraging the segmentation that Brennan mentioned earlier and providing uh, education around financial wellness that is very specific to that individual user, you know, or, or consumer, mm-hmm. those types of things. It's like, we've got to, to get back to what we know uh, we have to do, which is work hard to build those relationships. Free money's over, opening the door and growing by 20 to 30 percent is is over. Like we got to get out and beat the streets again like we used to. Yeah. Well, back to that, you know, there are some in the industry that don't understand the zero interest rate phenomenon was a phenomenon is the operative word in ZERP, right? That we need to rethink value and how we deliver value. Brennan, I'm curious, when you think about, you know, expanding the relationship and competing on more than rate. What does that mean for Dart Bank? So for me, and just going back to what James said as well, is it's not spamming your customer. It's knowing, you know, are they opening your emails? Are they going in? You know, are they clicking the links? Are they reaching out more, you know, tying in the, you know, call function on Google? So we know they're calling us. Um, I actually, today I had uh, one of my team members look and the last two emails we sent, we had a 61% open rate and a 58% open rate. So, you know, if you can do that because you're not spamming your customer, you're not delivering them information that, you know, they're just going to delete right away or never open, you're already ahead of the game, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And we do that by segmenting them specifically. So, you know, you're not going to get an email, hey, open up a CD with us if you already have opened up a CD with us. That doesn't make any sense. That's you're you're right. spamming the customer and you're wasting that relationship. And they know now that you are not even looking at it. So uh, to me, it's using that. And then also, you know, I think the power of testimonials is often lost now with, you know, providing those examples of, hey, this is why you should use this. Uh, You know, this is why we're here for you. Um, We had an example the other day where uh, we had a customer that went to the hospital and uh, one of their family members needed to co-sign something that was due. And we were able to do that right from their phone. Uh, in the hospital. And it's sharing those messages. It's, you know, not necessarily using their names, but, you know, saying, hey, we're here when it's a turbulent time. We're here, um, you know, when you have questions, when you need us and really leveraging, you know, those stories to the people that might need them. So, you know, you wouldn't blast that out necessarily to everyone at the bank, but you might look at your segments and be like, okay, Mm. you know, these people have a higher chance of opening that email because they're interested or they have a higher chance of clicking the website to learn more, to watch that testimonial because they, you know, had a recent experience where, you know, they had a hospital billing, for example, you know, it's stuff like that, that you really can get granular, which is kind of scary, but also very beneficial. Uh, At my uh, previous role, we offered sales training. And and one of the things that we used to to tell financial institutions, especially community banks and credit unions, uh, being a community institution, it's your responsibility to keep your customers and members fiscally strong and financially healthy. And if you truly believe in your products and services and you believe it's going to benefit them, you're not selling to them if you're offering your products and services. You're helping them be more financially well. And I think that's exactly what you're you're saying is communicating to them when you know they need that communication in a way that they need to be communicated to. Yeah, I, I'm curious for both of you as we come close to time, because those are very important points. Do you have any stories or words of wisdom around when relationships or use of data can go wrong? 
Uh, I do. Uh, so, Jason, mine's often uh, is a lot like uh, yours that you mentioned earlier uh, in the podcast. Uh, I have been a member of a credit union uh, here in Birmingham for uh, forever. They have every product and service just about the, with us. I'm friends with the the chief marketing officer. We play golf, and, and I get uh, direct mail pieces or email pieces that don't uh, even relate to me at all. So I have uh, younger daughters, and I'll get a piece of mail that uh, says something about a baby. Yeah, are you having a baby? Do you want a credit card? Like I do not have a, a baby, and I better not have a baby. Otherwise, I'm going to lose my mind and probably burn my whole city down if my young daughters end up pregnant. And uh, I'll send him uh, a message that says, whoever you bought this list from, you should ask for your money back. Like, why are you sending me this? Well, it, I mean, it's back to you can actually the personalization, if you get it wrong, can work against you. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's better to say nothing than the wrong thing when it comes you know, to that. We, we've had automation problems where, you know, someone will leave the bank and we didn't realize they were on a, a system and they were still mailing out or emailing people that had actually passed away. Um, and we just didn't have it on the policies and procedures where, you know, Hey, that's, that's going on the checklist because we're not going to make that mistake again, because no one wants to get a, an email saying, Oh, happy birthday to someone that just passed. Uh, I think that's, that's a main one. That's a a good example, um, of what we've seen in the past. So last part of this, if a banker credit union can do just one thing to begin to improve. What should that first step be? And James, we're going to start with you because I know you are you know, perpetually pushing FIs that they need to do something, anything to get started. What would you recommend? Yes. Yeah, so first off, I would say do not get overwhelmed uh, by the ocean of data and possibilities. Uh, you'd be surprised at how many financial institutions don't do just some of the things that we consider blocking and tackling. Onboarding campaigns uh, or uh, onboarding journeys where you're not just welcoming a customer to the institution, but you're making sure that they're engaging in those sticky products. That's super simple. Uh, Right now, uh, all of your deposit products, making sure that you're understanding uh, your data within those money market and CD uh, savings accounts, finding you know, businesses that are hidden in retail checking accounts, those types of things so that you can offer them uh, the right product and service to keep them there without having to to offer the, the crazy rates that some institutions are that are buying business. That's very simple. So, I would just say focus on your database and have all of your employees understand what your database actually looks like. That's where I'd start. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for joining to talk about relationships, relationships, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Um, and you really look forward to the next time we get together and see where the world has changed and which of your predictions have come true or not. Thank you, Jason. All right. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs, banking unbound. I want to start with a true-false question for each of you, right? Just one word answer, and then we'll unpack it. Serene, want to start with you. 
picking the right partner ultimately determines the project's success. I would say definitely not true. So that's a false. False. Patrick? I'm going to go with false too. Uh, But isn't that what you guys do? Let's unpack this. Why, when you talk to the majority of, especially banks, and I would say credit unions definitely fall into this, and even a number of the fintechs, we get so fixated on finding the right partner. And Patrick, I want to start with you because you've been on both sides of this, where you've both been a non-banker joining a bank, and then you flipped the script when you went to Nighting, you're selling into lots of banks. Where does this fixation come from? You know, I, this is something we talked about and thought about even going back uh, a couple of years ago to Quantic when the three of us friends uh, first got to know each other. I do think very much inside of the banking industry is this understanding or assumed uh, standard of perfection. And there's parts of our lives as banks that you do need to be perfect when it comes to compliance and regulations, but that thing can carry over into all other decisions. And so I think we... We try to oftentimes approach it that way, and it leads to a lot of friction and inefficiency as a result. And I think, you know, I was going to use the word, it comes from a place of fear, which is kind of the same thing what Patrick said. You know, we're, we're afraid to make mistakes, and sometimes mistakes can be dangerous, but, you know, that's where, um, you know, Patrick, you always said progress, not perfection, right? I use that mantra a lot, too. I mean, we can't, if we always were so focused on being perfect, we'd never get anything done in banking. So. We've got to be, you know, calculated and careful about the decisions we make, but uh, we can't let, you know, a vendor selection turn us into, you know, having analysis paralysis and then not doing anything because that's more dangerous. That's a bigger risk. The the late uh, Steve Schnall, you know, one of the things he very early on taught me or made sure I knew he, his view on was bank's job is not, a bank's job is not to avoid risk. It is very much to take risk. That's why there's regulations and compliances to make sure we do that in a responsible way, which means we need to be really good at mitigating risk, but not entirely avoid it. And that creates that perfection and that analysis paralysis that I think is so pervasive through the industry. Yeah, it's to manage the risk, not mitigate it, which means that you're eyes wide open as to where you're taking those. You know, probably not what people would expect coming into this podcast title in terms of what we're going to talk about. But let's talk about risk for a second, not the risk and compliance side, but Serene, talk a little bit about with your team, this desire to be perfect or to avoid having made a mistake. Culturally, how have you had to manage that across the various banks and credit unions you've worked with? And what have you seen that really works and where does it start to fall down? Uh, small iterative experiments. So um, I found that it helps to give people the freedom to try little things, little things, and then it snowballs. And then there's this ripple effect. And I think people get more and more comfortable with realizing, oh, I didn't die. You know, I, ch- I changed this process or I tried something different and and the world didn't fall apart as a result. Um, and as a result, I'm like, wow, this is great. I don't have to do this extra step for this process. Or now we've got this great tool in place that makes our lives easier. And you know that that is a culture shift, though, and it takes time. It's not something that happens overnight, but it, it does get exciting when, it, when you start to see some traction there. Yeah. And the probability you burn the house down by doing one small iterative thing, right, is relatively low. Um, Patrick, when we talk about risk with 
you know, the capital R and the risk and compliance side. Let's start with the cultural and you, you, at Quantic, how did that work? And then let's talk a little bit about you. Know, so much of the energy in vendor and partner selection ends up around risk compliance and a lot of these very important but relatively tactical things. Let's talk about how you solve that problem. But first, let's start about this. Where does risk and compliance fit into the partnering process? Uh, you know, I think it affects every aspect of it in, in good ways and in unhelpful ways. And so I think you're right in the question because it is very central to all of this. You know, I, I remember very early on at Quantic, uh, having never worked at a bank or having any clue what regulators were. I uh, hadn't been there very long and we had the examiners in the office and kind of the one kind of almost explaining to me, if you will, and I can't remember how explicit she was in this or how much, you know, it was kind of my inference or takeaway, but the, the fundamental or central idea was if you want to be innovative in this space, you need to understand the law works the opposite as it does for you as a citizen. You can go do whatever you want as long as you don't break the law. As a bank, you can only do what the law explicitly states you is permissible. And so even in that, I think is this understanding that look, as a charter, you have to behave in a certain way. And if you really want to be innovative, you have to know what is possible. You can't avoid that. And I think so oftentimes, you know, in the, in the culture is like, hey, look, there's an awareness of risk and compliance, but maybe I only want to immerse myself so much in that versus offloading that to someone on the, the team. But you can't really do that if you want to be effective because it all does start with the law and risk and compliance. I don't know, Serene, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, um, I always say we get to do all kinds of fun things, but we have to do it within the framework of safety and sound. We still have a bank that we have to run in a safe and sound manner. Um, yeah. So it's a delicate dance, right? Uh, but but that's what our jobs are. And it's it's the risk profile of our banks doesn't seem to get any smaller. So it's the space we have to get more comfortable playing in. Yeah, you know, it's kind of taking us a little bit off topic, but one of the things, you know, coming into True Digital and Jason, you comment about being a banker, buying, a, you know, vendors and on the other side of it, I think never have gotten so immersed from the point of view or perspective of vendors as today. And actually coming to understand how many vendors a bank works with is kind of mind blowing. Like, and when I think about the number of vendors to even the like the headcount, I can't even come close to an analog in another industry. And it's also like in that understanding, it's wow, how important is this? And also how complicated it is because there's like 200 other pieces that get affected when you add any one person or any new vendor to the pie. Yeah, that network effect, right? Like it, the growth, what is Moore's other law that the, or it's Metcalf's law that the power of the network grows exponentially with each node. I would say yeah. Patrick's law is the complexity of your compliance regime grows exponentially with the number of partners and vendors you insert into it. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you have to have them and you need a lot, you do need a lot of them. So how you approach that is very important. Yeah. And I know you won't make this a sales pitch, but I think it is important for you to share the problem that True Digital set out to solve because it's very unique within the industry in terms of how you think about those vendors and the interconnections between them. So would love your thoughts on you know, 
how that works and why you founded True Digital. Uh, you know, it really did come out of my experience of selling to banks and rooted in, you know, kind of the truth of like, I love of the industry for being at Quantic and being a vendor, there are certain questions I always asked, Hey, who are your competitors? And Hey, can I speak to your references? And being in that moment is like, wow, I have some type of incentive to not maybe answer that as, as well as you would like me to answer it. Because I can't help but have my own selfish understanding of mine. I'm in business. Uh, and I thought about how it, it was in all of that and feeling like, okay, wow, there's got to be a way for a bank to find the truth it needs to without being influenced by someone. You know, there's lots of great things out there. The vendor can be a great partner. Uh, there's lots of, you know, groups like Alloy and consultants and VCs that are play an amazing role when you say, Hey, I need your help. But I do think there's something really powerful to be able to kind of self-serve and just understand. And that was kind of why we, you know, started True Digital was the, in the discovery process and try to make that easier. I think going, you know, now even four or five months into it, realize there's a much bigger opportunity and understanding around the optimization of the vendors a bank works with. But it was really from the experience of being a vendor and then saying, what would I have wanted if I was a banker? A lot of true digital. Yeah. Well, you and I have talked about true digital since I think the very first time we met at an ABA conference when you were fresh into the quantic, quantic role and we were talking about digital account opening and the boil of the ocean you know, that had to take place. And you know, I, I'm curious, and you know, disclosure, um, Quantic, when Patrick was there and Alloy Labs both invested in Mantle as a result. But I'm curious, Patrick, with that hat on, and Tyreen would love to you, for you to opine as well, you know, is picking the mantle the the key to success versus you know many of the other um, you know, digital account opening platforms out there? Because I know there are plenty of banks that say and credit unions that love mantle, and others who say that they're disappointed. And what's the difference? Yeah, I mean, I think I would put it this way, and again, this kind of comes into even you know the relationships the three of us have and what you know kind of trying to do today, which is the key to any vendor is kind of, can I actually get the collaboration that I need <laughs> from the vendor, from my team, and from my peers in the industry? Because we do have complicated uh, things we have to deal with, with existing vendors and legacy tech and compliance. And okay, I mean, the key for us with Mansell was actually being able to talk to other banks who had also worked with them and had the same core, et cetera. That's what, I mean, I mean, there's so many moments I remember in that journey where the key was knowing someone else. And, you know, that's how even, you know, all of us became friends. And the idea of Alloy was, hey, here's a way for you to find others to help or to collaborate with. And I think, you know, that that's really the key is with all these, with all vendors is the collaboration, the vendor internal to the organization and with each other sharing experiences. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be any specific you know, name, vendor name. I mean, I think Patrick's right. It's that, this is the difference between a vendor and a partner, right? It's that relationship. And bankers can understand this because we're we're always, at least community banks, we focus on relationship banking. 
versus transactional banking. And I think it's a nice comparison to our fintech partnerships. Our fintech partners can be a transaction or they can be a relationship. Well, there's a big difference there. You're gonna are you gonna partner with somebody who's gonna be there through thick and thin, and you're gonna be have, have a symbiotic relationship where there's a little give and take. I'll beta test this for you. You know, you deliver it for me. I mean, there's there's a lot of that that happens. Transactional. I mean, you have some of those because you have to, but but it's usually just a service that you know you, you turn it on, you're, you let it ride. You're not looking at innovating or or plowing new ground or trying to do something different or new. So that, I think that's an important difference. Yeah, and Serena, I want to pull on that thread because it feels like it came in vogue that everything's now a partner, that we don't pick vendors, we partner with everyone. And so let me ask the question to both of you is, should every you know piece of technology or service you use be a partner, not a vendor? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think there's there's a a place for every every type of service. Um, I can think of probably a half a dozen tools that we have in our tool belt, because I, I have you know work in both the technology side and on the operations and, and some of the bank application side. And I, I think my colleagues here at Horcom would would agree with me that you know there are certain things that they do their job. You know, we there's no reason to to have to worry about having a best in breed or a, a strong you know partnership. But then there's other things that that's absolutely more critical. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think you know. Almost what came to mind was was an analogy that approaches from a different perspective. I did a lot of work at one point in my career around culture and how to how to set that and how to manage that, you know, as a leader. And one of the things that Patrick Lencioni teaches about is, hey, look, there's permission to play values and then there's core values. And those are different, but we oftentimes conflate them. Things like honesty and integrity, that's actually permission to play. Like if you don't have that, you don't get a job here. But that's not, you know, the defining thing that makes you unique. And so, in a similar way, to answer your question, there are there are relationships that we need as a bank or even as a non-bank that are transactions. It's like permission to play, and I don't need to approach it in the same way. And then there's other relationships where they are very important to what I'm doing, and that's when I should approach it like a partnership. Yeah, I mean, I would throw out that. You, every bank should be making better use of their email marketing system, but that is also a vendor, not a partner that they need to understand and should watch videos, the AB testing and reporting available to them. But if they're selling you on partnership, that's probably not energy well spent. And Patrick, I love the permission to play because just had this conversation with the CIO today around, I got to look at their RFP they're sending for something that truly is a partnership. But if you look at you know the first page, it's all around things that I would say you just described as permission to play, like SOC 2 and you know API architecture, you know, things that aren't ultimately going to be the determinant of what, if this project is going to be successful or not. I'm curious from both of you, um, Serene, we'd love to start with you. What are the true success factors that if you look at what's going to make a partnership really work or versus a vendor relationship really work, what sets that up for success from the outset? You know, I used to think a little bit more like that transactional, you know, experience that you referred to. Um, I think we as banks tend to not set realistic expectations for some of the partnerships that we explore. 
um, we, we've already kind of alluded to the fact that a partnership is really somebody who's going to be there with you to kind of work through some things. Maybe not everything is ironed out. Maybe you don't have a sock too. That's something that in the early days, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't work with a company that doesn't have that you know, all figured out because that's going to be problematic. But you know, through the years, I've learned that you actually make much better progress and traction when you work with a maybe an early starter or somebody who's eager and driven to really work with a, a committed partner. Um, it's like any other relationship. You know, you get kind of emotionally, and we're emotional people are emotional, we're humans, right? And so there is some level of emotion, whether we want to admit it or not. But I think that comes from a place of developing a relationship with a, a potential partner. And it's true in, in business and these fintech partnerships. Because you know, you feel committed on both sides to, to see each other be successful. It's not just all about me. It's about how can I help you also be successful? That's something that I think I've learned through the years to pay attention to, um, more so than I did in the early days. To play on that a little bit, uh, I think in, in, a, in a similar way, how we kind of the lesson learned there is, you know, getting to work at NIDIG and, and really the parent company, Stonebridge, all of a sudden, I go from community banking to Wall Street, <laughs> and I had very little uh, practice or preparation for that. But one of the things that I took away that was so, so valuable was a mindset around how to understand risk and the sharing of risk. And you know that's, that's quintessential to trading. Uh, and when it comes to partnerships, I think so much of it is uh, exactly uh, to your point, it, it's a relationship and, and relationships need clear expectations. And there's actually an exercise in saying, hey, I this is what you can expect of me and running into that, not hiding from it, because when it's open, then both sides can help say, OK, how do we manage that risk exactly to kind of your, 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 your point? If it's an early stage, someone's saying, oh, I don't have a SOC 2 yet. Do you actually tell me that <laughs> I can work with you? to get to the finish line when you're trying to manage or maintain certain expectations that aren't right that's when we get in trouble because what it's all what it's fun ultimately doing is hiding some risk from someone else and that just doesn't work i have a, a small story about that i mean tailor two banks i have a, a, a colleague of mine that works for another bank we actually selected the same exact partner they've since abandoned that and we are plowing ahead now in the beginning, what we purchased was something that we intended to serve um, as a solution, and it really didn't serve that purpose. However, we're committed in a true partnership here, and they are working with us to develop what we originally thought we had purchased. That's a, the difference. If any other transactional relationship would have said, okay, sorry, we oversold you, and this just wasn't going to work, and then we would have had to part ways. Well, that's not the case for us. You know, we've decided we're going to help you. You're going to help us, and in the end, you're going to have a better product, and we're going to have better processes. So let's let's stay in the game. I don't know many that have the courage to admit that openly. And conversely, I'd say, do I have another bank that Serena? I'll tell you afterwards. Another Alloy Labs member. They'd say one of their greatest attributes is they learn the hard way. If it's not working, sometimes grinding it out is not the best approach. That the willingness to admit at the C-suite that the risks they identified going in were in fact playing out and they pivoted. 
right? And I, th- I think both require acts of courage that not often when we talk about partnership and vendor management do acts of courage <laughs> mainly get surfaced, but it feels like even making the decision sometimes requires an act of courage and being willing to admit things aren't working is an act of courage, right? Which is never going to work if we don't change. And I'm curious in that process, organizationally, Serene, how do you breed that courage? Because Horicon especially has developed such a unique culture around this openness to um, share what's working and what's not. Well, I mean, I think I have uh, some predecessors here at the bank to, to thank for, for helping to plow that, that ground and creating that culture. But um, I, I think, again, it goes back to integrity and commitment and, you know, that relationship and, and making sure that we, you know, if we're the bank that abandons, you know, ship every time something gets rocky, nobody else is going to want to work with us either. I mean, this is the, one of the things I think is valuable about traditional. Um, I was on the phone this morning for over an hour with another bank that, you know, has a similar system that we do, but they're experiencing some challenges. They're like, how is it that you're able to be successful? Is it, you know, sometimes we're our own worst enemies as banks. And so sometimes we need a reality check, like, okay, is it me or is it them? Or is it, you know, is this a common problem? And I think that's where we will have an additional resource to go to, to find, okay, is this us? Is this a culture problem? Is this a systemic problem with the vendor partner that we're working with? Is this something that's a pattern with other clients that they're working with? Or is this something that we can recover from? And we should always be, again, seeking the success of not just ourselves, but who are our true partners and and making that a symbiotic positive win-win. Patrick, part of the true digital platform you know, requisite to this is the idea of information sharing is you've been talking to banks because historically, you know, and ironically, credit unions share information and the biggest banks, you know, have built consortiums that share information. And it's the wide middle from community banks up to the, you know, call it the regionals where the problem lies. What kind of receptivity have you found and what do you think um, is the motivating factor? So two things, one kind of the, just come into this a bit, even to the last point, which is sometimes you do have to say, I need to pivot. But if I can approach that by everything I've learned up until this point will help me pivot in the, in a best, in the best way, you can be very, I think, you know, successful, but that does take courage. I mean, even true digital, it's a network of banks that are trying to come together to make something possible. How is how are we here? Well, got to know a lot of banks, frankly, while trying to help bring Bitcoin to the industry. And okay, what you know, what can I, what have I learned through that process? How can I apply it? And if I can, in a way that solves a bit more, you know, a problem, creates more value for people, then I need to be committed to that. Not an idea of something; it's solving a problem. Uh, I think you know, with True Digital. Again, similar here, you know, I got to talk to almost or around a thousand banks and credit unions in the last couple of years about crypto. And some of them would have very intense, we are not talking about this. We don't want anyone, anyone to know we're talking to you. You know, it's our crypto strategy. And then there were others who talked to each other and kind of sitting from where I did, the banks that I saw actually engage with each other about us and how they were thinking about things and solving things were the banks that generally seem to be making a lot more traction, not just with crypto, but in terms of what they were doing. 
Whereas the banks that were more closed off, you know, there was, there is a, there, it did feel like a difference there. There are some things that were, you know, probably in most of the cases they were winning, but it was a different kind of overall momentum and pace of innovation than the banks that engaged with each other. And I guess I just saw through that process how powerful it was when we like when we were trying to get the first, you know, FIs live on the Q2 system. Two banks talking to each other or a bank and a credit union working together to figure out okay, this core to this front end, how do we make this thing work? It was in that collaboration. We actually so much progress was made. And, and you know, I think that's what trying to help do is make that possible by design for banks, not left, you know, up, up to chance. I mean, it's ironic if ultimately what we're trying to do is reduce risk. Sharing information can be one of the things that reduces that risk. And it's the thing that we're most closed off to doing often, right? Yeah. You know, there was probably a moment in the industry when there was more than 20 vendors, but not 2000. (laughs) And in that moment, maybe who you worked with did matter a bit more. Because the the risk reward of getting the right one was just inherently higher in a smaller denominator. But today, there's thousands of vendors. We all need them. And it's just no longer true. And so we need to re-underwrite that to say, okay, given the reality today, this is actually now a complex web. And I should, I want to get help because it's not a competitive advantage anymore. There's not any risk there. Like we all need to do the same things. Now, as we come to a close, what about two things off of you, the fire around string? We'll start with you. What is the one thing you wish would change around the industry when it comes to partnering? Um, again, I think it, it's setting those expectations for early starting partners and setting the same expectations for them as we would for a larger um you know, already well-established fintech partner. Um, I think both of them are, you know, smaller or name brand or no name, whatever you want to call it. Um, they have equally great technologies and we have to get comfortable. I would, I would like to see us get a little bit more comfortable in our industry with being able to work with partners that maybe are in a, a seed stage, maybe you know, working through series A and, and maybe don't have you know, everything completely buttoned up, but that we can be on that journey with them and then help them get to the end goal for their product. And then in the end, we also have a, a service or, or something that meets our needs. And then in the end, you have a success story for both for both sides. And I think too many banks shy away from that because they don't feel comfortable with, with the risk of, of doing that. So I think that's just an opportunity that's lost for some institutions, unfortunately. Yeah. Patrick? Uh Get out of our own way. We all need to hear that sometimes from, you know, our friends and our parents and and mentors, which is the, hey, like, you're kind of in your own way here. (laughs) Uh, You know, I and I think about even showing the true digital platform to, you know, so many banks for the last couple of months. And and truthfully, very few were like, no, that wouldn't be helpful. (laughs) Uh, You know, call me when you have enough, you know, people signed up. But, you know, if you've seen the project, the product, and you've heard the proposition, we're, we're really just trying to build a way for banks to interact with each other. The, the product is actually dependent on you, the bank. And we're, you know, saying, hey, this, I will use this and I will contribute in this way. 
And so again, like so many, yes, that's great. But like, call me when you get there. And we're kind of in our own way. I think we all, you know, when it comes to partners and, you know, not just about true digital, but when it comes to partners, maybe, you know, be okay with a little bit more of a mess up front, be okay. Just like saying, okay. And taking the step it's, it's, it's okay. And there's a ton of learning by just getting off of zero that's possible. Well, and I think one of the most important lessons with that is if you really want to deliver on a relationship that's differentiated and powerful, being the exact same as everyone else isn't going to set you apart in a way that makes for an interesting relationship. And I think both of you talking about that courage to you know, get into some of the messier things and figure it out together is ultimately what the majority of banks you know, and credit unions that are going to thrive in the coming era are going to uh, figure out. So thank you both for sharing your perspectives on why it's not all about the vendor and partnerships are important, but ultimately not the most important. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.